Welcome back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. This is your co-host Justin Bullock. I'm here with my co-host Greg Galls. And, and we are and we are in downtown Uncorked in, in historic in, downtown Bryan. Historic downtown Bryan. Very I, good, Justin. I botched it in our promo again. I eventually will remember that this is a historic place. Yep. But until then, I keep botching it. And we have two lovely guests with us that we'll introduce here shortly. Lovely and talented. Lovely and talented. Um and one last-minute addition, uh, which is kind of exciting, so we, we've shifted into a panel discussion, which will be a lot of fun for us, I think, this evening. Um, a couple of front matter things. Uh, we're going to do one more episode this season. We'll be recording here at uh, Downtown Uncorked next Tuesday, which I believe is December the 10th at 5 p.m. if you would like to join us. 5 p.m., not 6 p.m. Not 6 p.m., which is what we've been doing. And I think in the spring we'll probably go back to 5 p.m. That'll be fine. It's been been a little late for Greg. I'm keeping him out past his bedtime. I'm old. Well, (laughs) happy hour begins at 5 o'clock, so, you know. so we should start then. Yeah, exactly. And um, as we said in our promo video, if you happen to see that, uh, Ambassador Larry Knapper will be with us next week, and we'll be discussing Ukraine, not specifically impeachment, but... Um, Ukraine policy and how um, it's interacted with the U.S. and then kind of eventually get to why this has become a major talking point in the impeachment hearings, I'm sure. So uh, with that, we'll jump in. We have uh, Professor Kent Portney and Professor Jonathan Coopersmith with us today. What I'm going to ask them to do is just uh, situate their uh, intellectual history and research. Uh, Kent Portney has been with us once before, um, but we'll give him an opportunity to do that as well again. And Jonathan Coopersmith, who's outside of the Bush School, we appreciate you joining us uh, from as an external member of the Bush School Uncorked family, and uh, we'll hear from him as well. So, with that, we'll jump right in. Kent, if you'd like to go first, just telling us how you think of your kind of the work you do and introduce yourself. We'll do Jonathan, and then I'd like to talk a little bit about the work the recent work you've been doing at the Institute for Science, Technology, and Public Policy. Okay, before we get to that, I do want to ask Jonathan to choose whether he's talented or, what did you say, talented? Lovely. Lovely, lovely. lovely and Pictures. talented. Are you the talented one? Or the no, one? no, you're both lovely and talented. But the question is, yeah. are, we, are we speaking backwards and wearing high heels? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it worked for Ginger, Ginger Rod, Rogers, um, and by the, my claim to fame is that my brother once danced with Ginger Rogers. Oh, really? Okay, that's your claim. That well, it's about as close as I'm going to come to being called talented and lovely. And who is Ginger Robbins for those? No, Ginger Rogers. Rogers. Ginger Rogers. Come on, I'm she the danced, She danced with Fred Astaire in numerous she, movies. Oh, she did okay. everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards in high heels. <laughs> <laughs> and this was at a fundraiser, and my brother was substituting for my father, and he was he was in college then, and he was seated next to Ginger Rogers, and like you, he had the innocence or ignorance <laughs> of youth, uh-huh. and all evening these men kept coming up, um, who were more of you know, older, distinguished men, and you know pro- professor types. Of, Bush school, for example, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. asking her to dance, and she kept politely declining until she found out that my brother didn't know how to ballroom dance, and she said, we'll change that, and you know those movements in the movies, the moments in the movies where 
everybody freezes and all of a sudden the spotlight is uh -huh, on. Uh -huh. It's the same thing. <laughs> uh, she takes this college student who doesn't know and they sweep around the floor and I think that's the time I've really been most envious of my brother. Yeah. <laughs> I'm envious of your brother. Is there a video? Can we no, there is no video. This was this was this was back in the last century before there were before there were <laughs> smartphones. You know, so nobody was there filming it. They were just you know the men were in in total awe. The and my brother was just saying, What am I doing? She was leading. She was leading, yeah, backwards great. and in high heels, yeah. and setting the standard, even even then. I've already learned something. I've already learned something. By the way, if you have not seen a Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers film, you should. Okay. You know, I'm sorry. Pay no attention to the plot, because if you do, <laughs> you're in trouble. It won't but the, yes, the dancing is just spectacular, as is the scenery. And remembering that this is a lot of this is done in 1930s. During the, during the Depression. This was escapism at its best. So my only reference point for dancing from that time period is Jimmy Stewart from It's a Wonderful Life. As the as the, as the pools are open and they're dancing and the lights on them and then they fall in. That's my only, that's my only reference. Sorry guys. Well, you, need, All right. you, need, you need to develop Kent, your education. Kent, Kent yes. about your work. Alright, my, my work has Span quite a array of, of topics and policy areas. I, I think of my own work as being focused on urban sustainability. That's what I really, that's where my passion is. But since I've been director at the Institute for um, Science, Technology, and Public Policy, we've been brought into other, many other areas as well. Now I know, understand that um, that previous uh, Bush on Court. Speakers have talked about city stuff, mm -hmm. so I'll take all of the city work that we're doing off the table, so we won't talk about any of that. But I, I came prepared to talk about three other projects we have underway right now, and I'll be happy to describe those, and then we can we can turn it over to Jonathan and say which one you like, yeah. if any. Excellent. Well, one from column A, one from column B, one well, from column C. So, Jonathan, maybe give us a little bit, uh, we haven't had you on the podcast before. I think the listeners have heard a little bit of Kent's background before. So, tell us a little bit about your intellectual background. Well, you're in historic downtown Bryan. There's your There's, your there's my history reference, yeah. Yep. And you need a historian. So, by the most amazing coincidences, I happen to be a historian. I'm a historian of, tech, of technology. Um, I've done a wide range of research. I can tell you the location of every light bulb in Russia in 1880. And <laughs> How many were there? Uh, there were about 900 of them. Uh, and I can also tell you why that, why that mattered. Because back in uh, 1880, if you owned a light bulb, it wasn't just that you owned a light bulb, you needed, you also owned the generator, right. you owned the wire, you needed a mechanic. In other words, it was like having a supercomputer. Can I ask Greg how many light bulbs there were in the U.S. at that time? I have no idea. Oh, that was before you? Yes. Ah! Ha ha ha. But the reason, so, you know, with the, with the, with the light bulb, it was, um, yeah, I was looking at the list, and this was when I was a graduate student. This was my dissertation on Russian electrification. 
I was thrilled for a couple days. And, wow, what could be more useless than the list of light bulbs? And then I looked at the list, and I realized that, oh, these were in places like um, the gunpowder factory, Fort This, um, you know, the naval, the naval ship that. And suddenly I realized, oh, you know, the fact that many of these were military installations and that many of the electrical engineers at that time had titles like captain or major in front of them just made me realize, unlike the United States, uh, the infusion or the development of electric lighting in Russia was pushed by the, by the, by the military. Top just down, not bottom top up. Top down, bottom up, weak, no civilian, weak civilian economy, military here, just like uh, supercomputers in the 1950s in the U.S. and 60s, pushed by the, pushed by the military. So I'm a historian of, of, of technology. I've worked on Russian electrification, um, done a history of the fax machine, role of technology in pornography, the role of pornography in technology is equally good. Um, I do a lot of work on failure, and my current work is looking at the importance of fraud, froth, and fear in emerging technologies. Fraud, froth, and fear. All right, I want to come back to that because I want to learn more about that. So do I. Excellent. Kent. Yes. So let's hear these three different things that maybe uh, the Institute for Science, Technology, and Public Policy has been working on. That would be interesting for us to dive in first. Okay. So let me start with, I'll, I'll leave the one that I think we'll end up talking about for last. All right. So, one of the projects we've been working on is on what I call the water energy food nexus governance. The engineering world has been taken by storm by this idea of a, a nexus or connection between water, energy, and food. And most of the, most of the research that's been done has been trying to um, uh, document how much energy it takes to produce water, how much water produce, you need to produce energy, how much water you need to produce food, and so on. And so they have actual numbers. They say you need X number of gallons to do, to do this or that. Nobody, until we got involved, was interested in the governance of those resources and how the governance of the resources might be coordinated or uncoordinated and what the implications of that would be. So we've done a big project on, on that, continuing to do that project. The um, second project, um, why don't I just jump to the, to the one that I think we'll end up talking about, which is we've been working for the last year and a half on a project involving what we call gene drive. The gene drive is the use of genetic en uh, editing, gene editing, to change the whole population of some kind of critter, uh, it, usually for the purpose of wiping that population of critters out. And our focus is on um, four different critters in the state of Texas that have implications for agriculture. So uh, it involves the boll weevil. The boll weevil has undergone an eradication program for many decades. It's been relatively successful with traditional methods, except in South Texas. And the boll weevil is now starting to make a comeback. Uh, concerns a lot of people. The second one is called Indian meal moth. That's the moth that gets in your food. You know, you ever get a, some flour in your cupboard and you end up with these moths? 
Mm-hmm. You know, you look at, oh, I don't want any. That, you know, it's, it won't hurt you. Good and, source of protein. And they're organic. <laughs> and they're organic. <laughs> but nobody wants them, so. Who wants to eat a piece of bread that has a moth stuck in well, it? Well, I, I wouldn't it's mind, protein. but. It's protein. But <laughs> crunchy. You know, the, the, food, the food industry, the retailers, the wholesalers, they don't want the stuff in their, in their flour and their grains. Yeah. Uh, the third um, one is uh, something called pigweed. Pigweed is a, is a, a weed that's uh, hard to control in agriculture. It crowds out food crops. And um, the only way to, to kill it right now is with uh, our favorite pesticide called Roundup. Ah, Roundup. And we know not only is Roundup bad for you, but it's losing its effectiveness. Pigweed is adapting to, to the application and becoming more and more resistant to it. Like um, antibiotics. I think there's probably an analogy there. The uh, fourth th- uh, critter is the mosquito that promises to carry what's called Rift Valley Fever. Mm-hmm. Rift Valley Fever has not shown itself in Texas yet, but uh, the cattle industry in Texas is scared to death that it might show up. And if it shows up, it can wipe out the cattle industry in no time at all. Oh, wow. it's, it, it's present in the Rift Valley of Africa. It has done major damage to the, the cattle populations. Uh, and uh, if it were to show up in Texas, it would be devastating to the cattle. And of course, cattle industry is probably second only to what, Greg? In Texas, is it oil? Is it oil? Oh, is it oil? Is it oil? <laughs> yes. What is oil? Yes. Not football. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> forget about football. How can you forget about football? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe after last week's there, boss, right? you want to forget. Oh, about yeah, that's true. So, our project is working with a bunch of entomologists to uh, interview stakeholders, stakeholder groups, uh, to find out help people understand or may understand this idea of controlling these populations and to understand what kinds of risks people would be most concerned about if efforts were actually made to do the gene editing. Mm. The gene editors, mainly in the entomology department but elsewhere as well, say they're getting very close to being able to edit the genes of these critters so they can wipe out the whole population. So you splice you, you, you edit the genes, yeah. you introduce a number of, of the, the, let's say the mosquitoes, with this genetic modification, yes. and they mate. the population, they mate. They mate, and, 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 and in essence, the, the mating doesn't work, and the right. population That's right. disappears. It, it's sort of like sterilizing uh, right. flies, yes. but this it's, time it's actually genetic. And, and it passes the genes on. on right. right. When you sterilize... Um, Critters now, it doesn't pass doesn't the genes, pass on. The genes on. It right. kills the ones that are there. Uh, the um, gene drive ha- is not legal in the United States. Um, so it's legal experimentally. It's no, a, I mean, pe- the people in the entomology department are not breaking the law by doing these experiments. Uh, not so far. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the the, the uh, experimental research is being done in, mostly in Europe, and oh. most of it is being funded by... The Gates Foundation. Oh. The, the, the target of most of that right now is the mosquito that carries um, the, help me, the, the virus. West Nile? West no, Nile? No, no, the African 
Uh, dengue fever? No. I'm not having one of Rift those Valley? senior no. senior moments. Malaria. We, malaria. We, malaria. Thank malaria. Oh, malaria. Oh. Malaria. This is why we need an audience. This is why we need an audience. (laughs) Thank you. you. The Gates Foundation is investing, you know, tens of millions of dollars in the research. Oh, right. The Gates Foundation malaria uh, eradication. They're doing it in Europe because they have a different regulatory regime than the United States. And and malaria is interesting here because we have, you know, the previous effort to eradicate malaria was done through DDT. Right. Which in the 40s and 50s was a miracle drug. Right. It wiped out these mosquitoes. People lived a better life. And then we found out that DDT had these unintended, unintended consequences, right. side effects in the environment. And that's the question. Will these gene splicing experiments have these side effects yeah. in the environment? That's right. So um, there's no way, as Jonathan can tell you, there's no way to be sure that something like this would not have unintended right. consequences. It's a matter in, of... In fact, you can almost rest assured that it will have unintended consequences. Well, depends on who you talk to. But, you know, how how serious and how dangerous they are. You can imagine the primary and secondary consequences that could arise. It, it lets your imagination go wild. Yeah. That's why you have science fiction writers. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> But, yeah, and one of the big differences with previous efforts is that unlike sterilization, which is just going to affect that particular um, critter, to use the technical name, if you're editing the gene drive, you're, you're making this for all generations. That's right. And you know, Now, some of the, um, the people who do the genetic um, uh, research say that there might be a way to do the gene editing so that it can be reversed. So you can oh that you can reverse gene editing. That's what they some say you can do it, but nobody has actually done it even in a laboratory. Yeah. Right. And right now the laboratory experiments have graduated to the point where they're just trying to find out what it takes to promulgate the genetic change into a larger population, uh, not to, not in the real world, but in a, a controlled setting. Right. So. Uh, we're doing this research to find out what are people's concerns. What what sort of people are you talking to? Well, or we're talking, talking with. We've got a list of about 250 stakeholder okay. organizations okay. in Texas that includes uh, uh, government officials, people from industry, people in the in the farming industry, um, farm workers. We're very interested in understanding how farm workers and farm workers organizations uh, respond to this idea. Keep in mind that um, while there could be unintended negative consequences, the promise is you can substitute this for the widespread use of pesticides, right? right? Which are not benign to the environment or to human health, right? So there's at least a promise there that you can do away with Roundup and other, other pesticides by getting this right. If you can get rid of the pigweed without Roundup, right. that would be a great thing. That's right. There, there are a bunch of other kinds of issues, such as there's a strain of, of the plant that we call pigweed that's grown in Mexico for food. It's a food crop. Wow. Interesting. So, so, you, could, so you could accidentally destroy yes, food crop. people's food. You know, yeah, which, yeah. And you can easily um, assume what happens when bad guys, if you get the gene yeah. drive sufficiently developed, what can, you know, bad, bad guys can say, you know, instead of eliminating Rift fever, let's, you know, let's push it. That's right. Um, 
Well, that might be a nice tie to this fear, froth, and failure idea. So what, what kind of things are you thinking about in Jonathan as, as that research? Are there some examples of technology that fit in with that uh, topic that you could kind of okay. uh, um, let us know about? Basically, the premise of my research now is, well, okay, you're too young to remember when Amazon came out or... Um, <laughs> But it's true. Let the record show these Let the record only the justice. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was talking about the Amazon River in Brazil. I had no idea what he was talking about. If you, you can order books online. So I understand. And other things now, great. So I understand. <laughs> it's sort of it's sort of a scaled up version of um, rural free delivery on yeah. steroids. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But no, the, the, no. But the, the no, here's this here's this tech uh, here's this company, this technology that promised it was going to revolutionize reality, and it did. You know, it's emerging technology. There's lots of hype, and part of my argument is that um, you know, for every Amazon that succeeded, you know, there are scores of companies that failed, and with a few exceptions, they didn't set out to fail. Um, but they, you know, they actually thought they could do this, and the evolution of a nor, you know, of a exciting revolutionary technology is going to be has to be accompanied by lots of firms that are going to fail, uh, that are adding to the excitement, that are adding just you know legitimation. Of, um, think about um, General Motors investing or Ford investing lots of money in auto in autonomous vehicles. And that's where the fear comes in, because GM is uh, you know, GM is asking its engineers, so what do you think of these self-driving vehicles? And the engineers are saying, oh, yeah, I mean, give us enough money and enough time, we'll come up with something, but it's not really ready yet. And the CEOs are saying, okay, my people are saying not quite yet, but what if they're wrong? So let me invest some money in that, because I'd rather because the consequences of being wrong are far more, far more serious than investing a few millions or tens of millions of dollars in, you know, in so the So the fear part is FOMO, fear of right. missing out. Fear of missing out, that if we don't do this and our competitors do this and it works out, um, we're messed up. So that's, and by the way, because GM is investing in this, that adds legitimacy to the broader field, mm. as well as drives up the prices, sends in more, more, more resources. The fraud uh, is very rare and includes self-fraud, as well as you know where you know I really do believe in this. Hey, you've got your foot on this, you know, you've got your finger on the scale. Don't you realize that? Um, and then you've got semi-fraud. Uh, my favorite example. My two favorite examples. One is from around 1800, where Eli, Eli Whitney demonstrates he's really created interchangeable parts for muskets, um, which, from a military perspective, again, military again, is really important because it means very simple battlefield repairs or off battlefield repairs. You don't need skilled mechanics to fix your, your musket. Um, and he demonstrates these parts before an audience includes the Vice President, the Secretary of War, several others, and Whitney at this point is years behind the contract, it's, he's over budget, some things don't change, and the parts 
Is it before or after cotton gin? This is after cotton gin. Okay. Because one of the things uh, uh, Whitney has learned is that it doesn't do you any good to patent a device that once you are told how it operates, any, anybody can make right. in a country with weak patent laws and um, very good lawyers. So Whitney's saying, if I get a government contract, you know, and I get a monopoly on what I'm doing, I can make money. Uh, and uh, Whitney gives a demonstration. Everybody says, Whitney, you're a genius. How much money do you need? Come back when you. you know, so instead of this two-year contract, it's 10 years. It's wonderful. About 160 years later, some Smithsonian researchers are looking at, the, at these muskets. Um, and they say, and, you know, and they're using, uh, you know, they're, they're using microscopes that look at it. They say, oh, these parts are interchangeable. That's true. But Whitney said he was making them in this one way, and he didn't. He read the demo. Um, ah, yeah. That's really funny. Yeah. And that's a, that's, that's, a, that's a bit of fraud on the government. On this case. I'll give you another example. Um, is it 2007, Steve Jobs gives the first iPhone demonstration. And six years later, uh, it's revealed that that demo was, was, uh, was rigged. You know, that you, know, you saw back on the screen five bars that had no bearing to what it was actually <laughs> received. You know, uh, there was another cell tower put into aid with, you know, uh, with, with the reception. And when he walked around picking up the iPhones, each of them was optimized for that specific part. Now, was that fraud? In some ways, no, because they knew that, look, give us a bit more time, we can fix these, these, these flaws. And almost any company, you know, there's a bit of, a, you know, they'll have war stories about the dog and pony shows where, you know, you, you've got, you know, Harry out front demonstrating the, you know, the gadget and in back, Mary's holding two pair wires together, and, um, you know, and that doesn't seem to have played Elon Musk recently. Yeah, with the with truck. This, Did the you truck. see this? <laughs> well, this the indestructible windows. Just, <laughs> just, I mean, it was just bad fraud. <laughs> well, no, it was just they didn't it affect the proper, or they yeah, said, yeah. well, you know, in case look, we know their problem, but give us a bit more resources, a bit more time, we'll fix them. Yeah. You know, this isn't a sense of you know, Musk not saying I'm going to come up with a truck that, you know, any sledgehammer to um, kill, but, you know, not quite ready, but we have to give a show. So that's a, that's, that's, you know, that's a bit of the self-right. And the, and the froth is, golly, everybody is saying uh, Bitcoin is the wave of the future of blockchain. I'm going to start a bit uh, a blockchain company, too. And you have, you know, these create a bit of hype, a bit of excitement, a bit of, you know, a lot of action. Investors are attractive because, wow, this is the wave of the, of the future. I know this because George Foreman told me so. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. no, but that brings in a lot of money. It brings it all, and it brings in more engineers. It brings in people saying, oh, you know, I should get in a bidder. That's our, our company. Justin are. was talking to you. Did you think of that? No. He's got Bullock bits. Bullock, <laughs> Bullock bits. bits. <laughs> so, so. Uh, one thing about the fear that I wanted to bring back to the genetic yeah. stuff is what kind of what kind of fears do the stakeholders have uh, in the conversations that uh, you've been having in the stakeholder analysis because genetics in particular has kind of a storied history 
that might cause people to be a little afraid of them. So if we can come back to the history part, but what, what are some what are some of these stakeholders saying as as part of their uh, worries or opportunities with with the gene drive? Well, um, as you can imagine, the number well maybe not. I mean, we went into this with the idea that a significant number of people would would be concerned about this as playing God, right? Mm -hmm. Really getting involved with and it turns out nobody seems to be concerned about that. Very, is, very small is that because it's about mosquitoes and pigweed? Well, I think so. I think yeah. people are tending to do this kind of cost-benefit analysis in their heads. And what they're really concerned about is the unintended consequences and how to, how to uh, uh, minimize the chances, not eliminate, but minimize the chances that there will be unintended consequences. The dilemma from a policy perspective is we want to know do they have any confidence that there's any regulatory agency that will do it right, whatever that means? And the answer is not too much. Is know, there so. a difference between, do they think that the federal government would do a better job than state government? Is there a sense of the level there's at which no, they might be trusted? There's there no might understanding be trust? of the difference, to be okay. honest with you. Um, right now, the regulatory um, regime, if you will call it that, is pretty fragmented in Washington. There are three primary agencies that each claim to have some uh, authority for the eventual regulation of aspects of this, the Food and Drug Administration, but only for food crops. Right. The U.S. Department of Agriculture and the, um, what's the third one, tell me, the EPA. The EPA, right, yeah. right. And so they have a they have an internal working group where they meet periodically and then argue about who has jurisdiction over what. <laughs> and it will eventually Welcome take, to government. Yeah, really. It will eventually take... Well, Congress is going to have to... Yes. There's going to have to be legal, so, some kind of legal movement on this. And there was an effort uh, a couple of years ago in the, in the federal farm bill to actually get this process started, right. to allocate uh, responsibilities and authorities. And it... Was, and it was uh, defeated in Congress. Really? It was not passed in the So Senate. we've had, I mean, we've had genetic modification in crops for a long time, right? We've been, we've been doing that for thousands of years, only we haven't called it Good genetic modification. modification. But that's what, that's what, you know, if you've been raising dogs or breeding cattle or hybridization. Yeah. We've been doing that for thousands of years. And the difference now is the type of tools and the precision with which we can do it, right? Yeah, the CRISPR-Cas9 technology has really fundamentally changed the, the world. So, so who, who is in charge of regulating uh, genetic modification of crops? FDA? The Food and Drug Administration will okay. have primary responsibility for that. But the, food and drug, but the U.S. Department of Agriculture you know, says, hey, wait a minute, we have something to do about the, with this too. So, and, and, okay, I apologize. Go ahead. But are they making a distinction between altering genes you know, existing genes, which is presumably what the gene drive would be, and um, the GMO, the genetically modified organism, where let's bring in some outside genes. Well, of course, um, they do make a distinction, but with gene drive, right. it's really about, um, I, I haven't gotten into all the gory details about it, but it's really about affecting the Turning the, reprodu the well, reproductive capacity for only those kinds of critters, to use your technical term, that um, reproduce sexually. That's the only 
plausible way that gene drive would, would wipe out a population. Well, how does it affect the pigweed? It, pigweeds reproduce sexually. Oh, okay. Right. Good question, Greg. Yeah. You're paying attention. Yes. Yeah. You're a good host. <laughs> well, you know, pigweed's not a mosquito. Right. <clears throat> this is true. <laughs> uncontroversial. That's right. the most uncontroversial thing you've said on the podcast. Thank you. So, why might people, to throw back to our story in, and I'm, I'm sure people have some sense of this, but why is genetic modification or kind of changing animals' genetics something that is contra- controversial from a historical standpoint? Is there an example from history where trying to do some genetic modifications was maybe done in a way that is unethical? Um, short answer is yes. But the, uh, no, uh, uh, one, you've got the example of the, of the eugenics movement, which, you know, playing God with, playing God with people. Uh, and by the way, there, which is very popular worldwide in the uh, 20s and 30s. Indeed, um, Nazi Germany took some of its eugenic principles from laws that were passed in, in, in the United States. So, say, say that again, say that again. <laughs> Nazi Germany took some of its ideas for its eugenic laws from laws in the United States. Many people in the progressive movement were were enthusiastic about eugenics. Yeah, basically Theodore Roosevelt. Better breeding of, of, uh, of, of humans. Again, this had both positive and negative aspects. You know, the positive, you know, let's provide better living conditions, let's provide good diets, let's, you know, but at the same time, you know, they may, well, let's prevent those people from breeding. Um, Wasn't it Oliver Wendell Holmes who said in a Supreme Court decision, five generations of idiots is enough on forced sterilization? Yeah. Uh, forced sterilization um, occurred in several U.S. states through the 1970s. Uh, the Swedish government, tens of thousands of, you know, uh, and who gets, who gets sterilized? It's usually um, my, poor minorities of some kind or, or another. Um, so you have that aspect. You also have the, uh, the playing God fear. Um, and you see this with um, GMOs, genetically modified organ, organ, organisms, where this um, where scientists, a lot of that has been adding um, extra genes or adding external genes and seeing what, what happens. You can get some really neat genetic art that's been created. You know, artists putting in global um, uh, fluorescent genes and this and that. That's cool, yeah. Frogs. Or Frogs. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, again, we've been modifying organisms, we've been modifying plants for thousands of years. Some of that's been through breeding uh, in the last century. Um, a random experiment of let's uh, let's use X-rays to create um, you know, let's use radiation, which is another scary word, to try to create <coughs> to try to modify genes and see what see what what happens. What GMOs are doing is much more targeted modification. Uh, so there are a lot of people who have, and there have been um, you know, examples of. We're going to eliminate, you know, malaria. We're going to eliminate this creature, that creature, once and once and for, uh, for all. And DDT was great 
oh, there are all these side consequences that we didn't really realize. So there, there's a lot of, in some cases, justified, in some cases, unjustified fear of the, of the, of the unknown. And one of the challenges of any time you're going to be doing a gene drive of, of transforming not just this generation, but all generations of, of, the, of, these, of these critters or these um, consenting plants. Um, consenting plants. <laughs> you ask the pigweed, will it be okay for us to alter your genes? And the pigweed nods. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, is what happens if we get something wrong, and how would we know? So you, know, you might, uh, and if I remember correctly, some of the early proposals for not so much in the U.S. but uh, can we test this on a deserted island or not a deserted island? Can we test this in a place where, oh golly, we didn't think of that? Yeah. You know, you haven't laid waste to all of Arkansas. <laughs> so, so one interesting way in which this is playing out now, bringing it to the human realm, there was a, there's been a really controversial case uh, out of China, right, where I think the gentleman's name was he, and there was uh, genetic modifications made to twin babies in China to make them more resistant to HIV. Um, and then there was some like there was a publication that came out that was it's going to shorten their lifespan, and then that paper had to be retracted. And so this is, I think, where some of the, the concerns about playing playing God really it may not play out as much in the mosquito, but when you start altering humans, these concerns I think pop up in full force. Well, we're but we're jumping quite a bit from mm -hmm. the kinds Plants. of projects that right. mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. Ken is talking about. You know, in to, fact, the uh, use of, of gene editing on humans is not legal. Correct. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not and legal in the United States. No, it's, not, it's legal. not illegal worldwide. Right. Even in China. Even in China. Yes. I mean, the Chinese reaction. Uh, in Russia, there's been a, um, a geneticist who's been talking publicly about this. Not so much as, but more so, look, what's the regulatory right. response? Right. Exactly. And this is something that's that's going to happen as the technology becomes more more um, democratized. Yeah. As it becomes easier to do, and by the way, you know, CRISPR has been refining itself over the over, over the years. And one of the challenges, you know, there is a huge difference between pigweed and people. Um, but in the larger political aspect, uh, if you want to scare somebody or get it, you know, say words GMOs or radiation. Um, by the way. Um, some of us are old enough to have had MRIs, um, magnetic resonance imaging. The original name of the MRI machine was NMR, Nuclear Magnetic Resonance. And that was changed because they said, oh, if it has the N word. The nuclear thing scared them off. It's got, it really, but oh, magnetic resonance. Oh. The technology hasn't changed, just the, the, technology, just the, the what they call it. So one of the scary, you know, one of the challenges of gene editing for uh, for these nasty critters is this going to get caught in a larger, less informed, vaguer debate. Sure, that's exactly right. But there, there are some legitimate concerns that people have, particularly around the control of the technology and of the gene drive by private sector. Mm. This is something that's come through loud and clear, even in Texas. Wow. People are, are very uh, wary of, uh, of 
major corporations gaining control of the technology for the purpose of changing the, the genes of, of critters, not to wipe out the population, but to make them more susceptible to their pesticides or their their fertilizers or the same sort of thing. Soybeans. Yes. Monsanto. There's plenty of precedent out so there. So we have to, what what did Monsanto do to soybeans? Corn and, and soybeans. Corn and corn. Well, and corn, right? Okay. Um, oh boy, I, if I, correct me if, 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 if um, I'm, I'm wrong, um, but they basically modified, genetically modified soybeans to be more resistant to Roundup. So that Roundup could be, could be used on the right. weeds and the soybeans right. and, would survive. And one of the aspects, and one of the, uh, this is um, from a corporate short-term profit perspective, it was brilliant. It worked. But from a setting the pace of, oh, this is a technology that big corporations are using to maximize profits, as opposed to, people, you know, what if we had developed our first product um, for a golden rice, you know, to give rice vitamin A, or to do right. something that people could say, oh, this actually helps people. Instead, it's, uh, you know, um, bovine growth hormone. Um, first applied not to make cows happier, but to increase yields. Um, and who benefited larger farmer, larger corporate farmers? That's the, that's the thing that people express real concern about, that, that the motives will not be the, you know, improving the human condition, but, but something else. Like in human, in human, improving the profit of one corporation right. and, and, and setting down a monopoly. Exactly. Right. Which so, would make sense given that's kind of the incentive structure. Well, and, and <laughs> these, are, these are patentable innovations, right? So if you, if you patent a particular gene sequence, is it, is it, is that, can you get a patent on a gene sequence? You know, I, I'm not an expert on patent law, Yeah. but my recollection is that the corn, the, 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 uh, the Monsanto corn, corn is, yeah. is patented. Is patented. Yeah. You obviously need to get somebody from the Texas A&M uh, Law School, which specializes they in have a, They have a lot of so a lot of expertise. You need to have a roadshow up there. Future guests? Can answer that. Future guests? Who is that? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But, so, so and, but there's also you have a lot of ag extension services working working on this, um, and there have been talk about having some, particularly in the in the third world, um, creating not open source software but open access to these modifications. These modifications, right? So, well, I mean, one of Texas A&M's most famous researchers was uh, Norman Borlaug, mm -hmm. who, I guess you could say, genetically modified. Crops. Yep, he did. Uh, uh, not not through CRISPR technology, but the through, through the traditional uh, hybridization, mm -hmm. and you know was the father of the Green Revolution. And our Borlaug Institute uh, bears his name. And, well, and just uh, to be clear about this, Borlaug has never expressed any interest in or support for, you know, a, a business model that would but that he, would uh, call for. Um, Gene editing of food crops for you know you know what I mean. There is no no business model right now uh -huh. that would that would entice a company to invest 
in the technology. All the investments in technology that are being done right now are being done by the federal government through universities. And as I said, nonprofits like the Gates Foundation. But except for the fact that Monsanto did do some of this. Or, but that was, was that just through hybridization that they created the corn and the soybeans? Yeah, that's a good question. I, uh, I, believe, I believe it was through genetic modification. It was so. through GMOs. That, okay. Know, but I, um, I'm a, I'm it's a, not a, a, a question of whether you can do it. It's a question of whether there's a business model that we're, will return your investment. Well, Monsanto? found nope. a business model that we're we don't know that, I don't know that they've and by the way, historically there has been a major federal role for getting rid of dread diseases of course getting rid of agriculture right. the boll weevil um, and, but, you know, we've been we've had campaigns against the boll weevil for generations yes. and one of the questions to ask is you know, how did these how did these previous efforts fail how will this be different right right we're historians. We ask the tough questions. We can't answer them. But in 50 years, perhaps you'll be able to answer them. Have you asked any any philosophers about gene drives for getting rid of nasty critters? Yes, we have one of a, mem a member of our of our team is. Uh, 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 she, she calls herself a med medical ethicist, but she's a philosopher. She was part of the National Academy of Science panel that wrote the gene drive report that was issued about three years ago. She's at the University of Texas Medical Center in Dallas. She's a member of our team, and she's doing some, many of the interviews that we're, that we're conducting right now. So the short answer is yes. You know, uh, one of the challenges for us is we're trying to deal with these in empirical ways, you know, and philosophers... Not unlike historians, <laughs> have a lot of trouble dealing with data. <laughs> well, it's I, I would disagree. I would disagree. It's just a different kind of data. You know, government documents and texts are data in the same way that large end surveys are data. Thoughts, you know, and philosophers are trained to approach questions rigorously and analytically, and ask questions that others others don't 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 ask. And, you know, no, the only difference is you ask questions that can't be answered. Um, <laughs> we, we like to ask questions that can. We like we like to <laughs> we like to phrase our questions in ways that we know that we already have the data to answer. It's uh, a good empiricist really, right there. And if you're really good, you phrase the questions in ways to which you already know the answer. Well, of course, you want. of course. <laughs> you find the answer, and then you then find the question. Well, yeah, of course. I take great exception to that. We don't know the answer <laughs> no, to any no, of these no, questions. No. <laughs> exactly. So, what will the answer be, though? I mean, what 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 will at least in a preliminary way your findings be? What will they report? Well, not not exactly, but what kinds of findings will we, you report? We have a couple of different. Um, uh, avenues that we're working on. One is we want to be able to make some recommendations to the regulatory agencies about directions they should go, how they should divide the labor, where the public concern would be greatest or least. The second is to, uh, particularly for the USDA, the USDA is very cognizant of all the mistakes they made around GMOs. Mm -hmm. They did everything wrong. But they don't know exactly what the right, what some of the right things would be, and they want some guidance on what, how to handle these issues, in the face of whatever the public and stakeholder opinion happens to be, right? We don't know, for example, that 
people are seeing gene editing in the same light as GMOs. Right. I think that it, it makes a good, it's a good analogy, but we don't know for sure. That so, so it's, it's different. Right. So I know we're getting, we're getting toward the end, but we've been talking about genetically modified organisms and gene editing. Yeah. Can we get a simple explanation for simple people like me as to what the difference is between a GMO and a gene edited entity? I'm not sure in common parlance there's any difference. No. Okay, I think we use them interchangeably. I, I think Jonathan had. Are you adding an outside are you gene? Adding an outside gene, or are you just changing an existing gene? Or turning so, a gene I mean, off or, oh, so you can turn a gene off, yeah, kind of, yeah. and that would be the. A genetic modification, yes. whereas a GMO is actually splicing in a gene. Well, they can be splicing uh, of genes, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're bringing a gene from a different plant, a different animal, a mm. different critter, oh. right? Okay. Which you can do with CRISPR. Right. right. Yeah. And right. again, what CRISPR does is allow, and its improved versions, allowing you to be a lot more precise. Very precise. Um, although there's still, from what I've seen in some of the earlier research, if I'm interpreting right, there's still, you know, there's still unintended errors. It's not as precise as it wants to be, but I was looking at the 2018 CRISPR and the 2020 CRISPR is going to be really that, 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 that much better. Well, mm -hmm. part of it, my understanding is, is you can, you can edit specific genes, but it's not always clear all the ways in which that gene interacts with other genes. Sure. So even yep. as we get more uh, specific in the gene that we can edit, once we edit that gene, it's not entirely clear all the impacts that gene has on the... Yeah, genetics are very complicated. Yeah. And the idea that you can just take a gene from something and put it in and have one, just have one effect, give something a single trait and nothing else. It doesn't uh, seem to be true. We, we don't know um, whether that's true or... It seems to be false. Yeah. Yeah. More often than, than yeah. we think. And, um, again, and some of these uh, challenges, you know, you only see these effects at scale. Yeah. Um, right. But you know, so, something that um, will be very useful when you introduce this monitoring a baseline before and after, trying to um, you know, trying to make sure that you know what was happening before and know what was happening afterwards, so you can see what was going on. Well, this was some of the controversy to bring it back to the to the human studies with the the, the editing of the twins in China was that the the edit made to make the twins uh, more resistant to HIV, the concern was what are the other consequences, right? Does it also shorten their lifespan, which is one of the claims. And so the, the issue wasn't with, hey, it's great that these, these twins are resistant to HIV. That's a good thing, maybe, but it's, we, don't, we don't know enough about the human genome to know exactly what all the unintended consequences might be. Right. It was very inspiring to see the universal reaction among Geneticists, which was just absolute horror. Yeah. You, know, you did what? Yeah. Uh, and you didn't tell anybody, but you didn't. And there's a lot of skepticism about whether yeah, it actually happened. Yeah. Right. Oh, oh, there's which the fraud. Is, yeah, fraud. Fraud people. Fraud showing back is, up. Which is why the Russian case is interesting, because yeah. here's a guy saying, look, I'm not saying I'm going to do this. I'm saying that we need to be thinking about doing this. Um, and that's a lot of what we need to be talking about. What are some of these consequences? What are some of these issues? Because genetic editing is going to be playing a much more prominent role in upcoming decades.
like it or not. Like it right. or not. Mm -hmm. So, Ken, in, in the interviews that you've been conducting, you and your team, do you find gradations in, in, in how worried people are? In other words, are they more worried about uh, gene, gene uh, modification in animals than in plants? I mean, is it... It doesn't uh, seem to be any difference there. Yeah. You know, this is, this is a very ch challenging area to do research in uh, because nobody knows anything about it. Right. You can ask people about it, but how do you ask somebody a question about, yeah, what do you think about gene editing or you yeah. know, gene drive? Oh, I when saw that movie with him. <laughs> <laughs> Great. But nobody knows what it is. Yeah. So unless you have some way of describing it, people don't know how to react yeah. to it. Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah. This is the real general problem with emerging technologies, right? I mean, exactly. we've done, you know, Jonathan and I were on a, on a panel talking about AI, which some, some of the things I've been studying on. And because it's so new, people don't really understand how it works and what the consequences are. It's just this big, scary, amorphous thing that people don't really know what to do with. And, and yet, you know, there are some things that, you know, wouldn't you like to be rid of, 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 of yeah. Right. yeah. All right, so I think we're getting close to our... Um, time mark we have a couple of people in the audience so we're going to give them uh, an opportunity to ask us any questions you mentioned the concern about uh, Rift Valley fever even though until fairly recently it's been completely isolated in mm -hmm. East Africa there's a possibility it could come to Texas right. of course if somebody develops a genetically modified organism that also could travel around the world. Yeah. So, you also mentioned that uh, you know Congress needs to regulate this, but I'm not sure that would be enough. If mm -hmm. something were allowed in Canada but not the U.S., it would quickly yes. right. that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and unless the U.S. was willing to like threaten to annihilate Canada, <laughs> nothing would happen about it. It would just happen. Well, with the current administration threatening to annihilate Canada, might it might in fact happen. Yeah. Or, or in this case, Mexico, which is yeah, right. <laughs> well, once we build the or both. once once we build the wall, all those problems in Mexico will just stay in Mexico. Has there been any discussion internationally? Yes, a lot of. If there has, like, is the United Nations willing to go to war to enforce this and that kind of thing? The last time I remember, nations voluntarily. Like all getting on board with the, with this sort of thing, and then the ozone layer crisis with fluorocarbons, yeah. and everybody did get on board, but it was a very easy to explain problem. It was very a very simple, straightforward fix. That's right. This is a lot more complicated. There's a lot more different opinions. So the question was: Is there kind of an international cooperation effort? Given that some of the edits made in one country or modifications made in one country could have spillover effects into other countries, and are there international? avenues for regulation? Well, uh, there are a couple of international organizations that have promulgated standards uh, for doing research on these, these issues across countries. They have no, they have no legal authority. Um, would the UN go to, how did you put it, would the UN go, go to go war? To war. <laughs> no. no. Yeah. Um, and my recollection is, I could be wrong about this, the U.S. is not a signatory to any of those, uh, any of those international agreements on gene editing. Um, so there's a lot of concern about that. Now, our research project, which is focused mainly on taxes, is talking to people in Mexico about this, stakeholders in Mexico, to see... What do you think about this? Are you worried about this? What, how are you going to deal with these kinds of issues? I don't have any answers for you on that yet, but we are 
we are uh, accounting for that, at least that piece of it. Specifically with respect to pigweed, because if we yeah. modify genes of pigweed to try to wipe out pigweed, it, it's impossible to imagine that we could contain it, you know, to the Rio Grande. You know, uh, Monsanto had that problem, despite its claims that it's uh, genetically right. modified soybeans. And, uh, uh, but if you really want to be scared about international gene trend, it would be the weaponization. It doesn't have to be a gene drive, but you know, uh, bad guys willingly trying to spread Rift Valley fever or yeah. some other form of agroeconomic warfare. And another example of this kind of playing out too is in, in AI, in autonomous intelligent systems, where there's not a strong enforce, international enforcement mechanism, for example, to keep countries from making autonomous weapons. Mm -hmm. So the strategies that then people take are through professional norms, and general like uh, technical standard agreements because you don't have these kind of sticks, these kind of enforcement mechanisms that we would um, that, that we would hope we would have. But you have to assume that drones pretty soon are going to pretty soon drones are going to be autonomous weapons, right? They already are. I yeah. mean, so they, they already are the capable. There already is the capable the cap capacity of drones autonomously finding. Uh, a target and firing. Firing. And the the only safeguard in right now that's kind of uh, that's practiced in the U.S. to my knowledge is you have someone that actually presses the button to pull the right. trigger. Right. But now drones can do through video uh, recognition and facial recognition can go find a target, lock on to them, and then the the only kind of piece in there right now is a human saying, "Yep, yeah, that's them." Fire. Right. But the technology is there is, already. Which is the easiest thing to replace. Yes. Yeah. It could be replaced now. It's just right. norms and standards are what keeping us right. from, from uh, doing away with the human in the loop at that piece. Well, on that happy note. <laughs> we will be back with you in a week. Um, so if you have an opportunity, come out and join us at uh, Downtown Uncorked next Tuesday, December 10th at 5 p.m. 5 p.m. start for, yep. for our final podcast of the semester and of the calendar year and we will be talk we'll be shifting back well we kind of ended on some international affairs issues right. but we will jump back into a full-fledged um, international affairs conversation talking about ukraine and why it's relevant to u.s foreign policy with ambassador larry knapper with ambassador exactly. larry knapper kent jonathan thank you so much for taking thank the time you. and being with us thank it's you. always a pleasure and uh, we'll do it again soon okay. thank you